You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley Welch. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. Uh, delighted to be with you as we begin our study in Ephesians, which we've been saying each week as uh, the, the sermon slide um, asks the question, who is the church? Uh, we've been looking at how the book of Ephesians is a letter to the church, really about the church, what it looks like to live in community and be a community under God. And we're going to look at that today in chapter two. Now, Every single one of us, where we're from, perhaps you're from a big city or you're from a small town, we could probably all find something about where we're from uh, that makes it uniquely special, or perhaps uh, something about that city that you would wear as a badge of honor, something that makes that city what it is. Uh, the city I grew up in has one of those things, and it is uh, high school football. Now, I know many of you are saying, well, yeah, duh, like every small town in America, right, would say it's high school football. But no other town was given the title from Sports Center, from ESPN, called Title Town USA, other than my town of Valdosta, Georgia. That's real. I was there. Um, we beat out cities like Boston and Green Bay, this small town of less than 100,000 people in South Georgia, uh, was named Title Town USA in 2008. If you go into the town, the street signs that say, welcome to Valdosta, underneath it's going to say, Wintersville, USA. <laughs> right? That's, that's a way to, to welcome someone to come to your, your uh, town. It's the type of town that on a Friday night, places close down at 6 p.m. as some 15,000 people pack into a stadium to watch 16 to 18-year-olds play a game. Right? There's a picture of my high school stadium. Yeah, you thought I was lying, right? It's pretty... <laughs> And it's the type of town that has a rivalry like no other, where the two schools that are in the town have this bitter hatred for one another. And they gather every year for what they call the Wintersville Classic, which is anywhere from literally 15 to 20,000 people show up for this game. I think there's a picture of uh, one of the more recent ones next. Now, in these moments, you have to choose a side. You're indoctrinated from birth to choose a side. And there was no one who indoctrinated me more than my sweet grandmother, who is on this next slide here. There she is. Yeah, she's sweet, isn't she? She's fierce too, guys. All right. From childhood, she indoctrinated us to love wildcat football, meaning we bled black and gold. To the point where one day she called me heartbroken because my cousin, her other grandson, was going to the Crosstown High School that my uncle, her son, had disowned her love for the Wildcats, so much so that he went to the other high school. And I remember her after church one day talking to me about this. She was so torn up about it. And she goes, Wesley, I, I want him to do so well, but I never want his team to win. <laughs> like, I want him to do so well in life as long as they never win. And I remember a story of her hatred so deeply for this, this team that she went with a friend to their football game only to stand on the home side the entire game rooting for the other team. She deeply bled black and gold to the point where one day someone confronted her about this, about her, her, uh, her grandson who was playing for the Crosstown team. And they said the famous line to her, Miss Betty Ruth, such a sweet Southern name, right? Miss Betty Ruth, 
don't you know that blood is thicker than water? And she stared this woman in the eyes, and she said, I'll never forget it, not when your blood bleeds black and gold. <laughs> and I thought, man, this, this woman, she is, she's something else. Now, I use that as an example, but the reality is that we live in a world where division is pretty common, where rivalry is common. And what rivalry naturally leads us to is this thing called hostility. It leads us to a place where, whether subtly or not so subtly, we seek to divide over things in our lives, to divide ourselves from one another. It can be something simple, like a high school football team, or it can be more substantial, like a political party affiliation, or even perhaps higher stakes, an ethnic or country divide. We live in a world filled with division, filled with robbery, filled with a disharmony between humanity. But God calls us to a different reality. He calls us as those who have been saved by his grace to be saved into something for a greater purpose than ourselves. And there is one institution on the planet. There is one place, there is one people that can truly rise above the differences that divide us in this world. And the Bible calls it the church. It is the new community created by his grace. That's what we're going to look at today. And that is really our main idea, that in Christ and in Christ alone, in Jesus, he alone can unite us into this new community. By his grace, he can bring people who are not like one another into a family and unite us together. Our outline is going to flow from the text today. We're going to look at four C's. I'm going to try my best at alliteration today, okay? We're going to look at the, the condition first. And what we mean by condition, the condition that we all have, a universal condition, a universal longing that this passage says we all have for something. And really the consequence that flows from that condition, that if we live in that condition, there's a consequence to our actions. And thirdly, really the cure. What is the cure for our condition? And finally, what is the community that is made possible because of the cure? What is the community that is made possible because of the cure? And I believe this is relevant for all of us today, because maybe... Like me, some of you grew up in the church, around the church, you've been involved in the church, you've gone to church for a long time, and what can happen is we can grow cynical towards the church, we can get burnt out by it, we can get tired, we can just go through the motions. And what Paul's going to do today is he's going to call us to remember, remember who we once were, remember what God has called us into in this new community today. And perhaps today, this could be a day where instead of nibbling on the fringes of church life, today you take one step closer into the family of God. Or perhaps today you're here and you're thinking, I'm, I'm pretty cynical about this. I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know what I believe about Christianity. I'm pretty cynical about this institution you call the church. Perhaps you have a mind like that of Thomas Paine, who was a great political philosopher and supporter of American independence, who said in the age of reason, all national institutions of churches, whether Jewish or Christian or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Perhaps you have a view like that, where you look at the institutional church and you just look at it with disdain, with skepticism. And what I hope that the Bible will teach you today and show you is that it is not a human invention. It is not an institution made by man. But it was truly created by God at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to be a family that you can be invited to today to live forever with. Even though you may be a little skeptical, I hope today you'll see the beauty of why the church matters for you and why it is exactly 
what your heart is longing for. Now, as we get to the text, let's just kind of recap before we jump in. We've been studying the book of Ephesians, and, and chapter 1 and 2 really deal with what we call the personal benefits of union with Christ, being united with Christ. As Christians, when we are united with Christ, every blessing, every spiritual blessing is ours. We are more spiritually wealthy than we could ever imagine in Christ. And Paul kind of teased this out for us in chapter 1. He talks how we are secure in Christ because of this. He, he talks how we have this intimate knowledge, this relationship, friendship with God because of Christ. That we have a hope that no matter if we're in the lows of life or we're in the, the mountaintops, we have a hope that is steady, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out completion. And that hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That one day we will be raised with him. And then last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, which says this is only possible because of God's grace. These individual blessings of knowing Christ and being in Christ are made possible because we've been saved by his grace. We've been transformed from death to life. And then we get to verse 11 here. And the first word says, therefore, remember. It's a transition. And when we look at the word, therefore, it suggests something to us. It suggests a continuity. In other words, Paul is not saying, let's move on to a new subject. Paul is connecting what he's about to say based on what he's already said. So we can't understand the first half of chapter 2 without understanding the second half of chapter 2. And we can't understand the second half of chapter 2 without first rooting it in the first half of chapter 2. In other words, all the personal benefits of a knowing Christ, of being united with Christ, also unites us to one another. It impacts us relationally, which we're about to see in this text. In essence, when we are saved, when we experience salvation as described in Ephesians 1 and the first half of chapter 2, it should lead us into this community, the church. It leads us to involvement with God's people. So he's connecting these things. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, there's that word again, remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul begins with this remembrance. He says, we got to jump into this and we have to remember who we once were. We have to remember where we've come from if we want to know where we're going. We have to ask those questions of remembrance if we're going to have a sense of gratitude and beauty and awe of what we've been brought into in the church. We have to remember and Paul says, remember that you once, Gentiles, you were once considered the uncircumcision, meaning you didn't have the, the physical sign of the covenant. You were once separated from God. And remember, you were once those looking outside the commonwealth of Virginia. I mean, the commonwealth of Israel, right? Why does Virginia have to be different? Okay. Every time I read this this week, I thought about Virginia. The commonwealth of Israel, right? This, this nation under God, Gentiles, you were, you were strangers, you were foreigners to that. What is Paul ultimately saying here? He's saying that you were without God in verse 12. You were without hope in this world. He literally uses the word here, athos, which is where we get the word atheist. He's calling them atheists. You were without God. What's ironic here is the Gentiles would also call the Jews atheists because they didn't believe in the Greco-Woman world gods. And we see this and we say, well, it just seems like there's a lot of name calling going on here. This is who you once were. You weren't these people. You are these people. And, ma and maybe we can just look at this and say, well, the Jews had their beliefs. The Gentiles had their beliefs. They're just separate. Why can't we be okay with that? 
Because that's not what Paul's starting with here. He's not showing the benefit of both sides. He's actually saying, what I'm, I'm showing you and trying to stress here is there's actually a universal, fundamental condition we all have in this passage. Summarized in verse 12. There's something we all desire, something we all need in life, and that is hope. Every single one of us in this room desires hope. And he says, you're without it. And without hope, there is no life. Without understanding who the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. Every single one of us wants hope, right? And Paul is connecting the answer to that universal condition, this longing for hope, for something greater than what this world can offer us in this present moment. Something greater than ourselves. The, the connected tissue here is he's connecting this universal condition with the covenants of promise. He says, you're, you're without the covenants of promise. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we pick up in Genesis chapter 12, and in Genesis chapter 11, we saw the Tower of Babel just a few months ago, that the world was just a mess, right? It's, an, it's, it's declined into an absolute mess. And God calls this man Abraham out of that fraction, out of that mess, and he promises him something. He calls Abraham, and he promises Abraham that one day, even though this world is a mess, even though it is fractured, one day it will come together in peace and harmony and live as a family defined by God. And he calls Abraham out of his country to go, and he says, I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And so through Abraham, he's going to showcase of the world that someday our hearts long for to be. This cure to the universal condition of alienation, of feeling like we're exiled, of feeling like we're strangers with no hope. That is the promise. Paul says we have to remember this. Each and every one of us, we have this universal condition. We're all longing for something beyond what this world can offer us. We're all longing for something beyond just the personal goals in which we strive for. Deep down inside, we know that, that we're longing for a life that never ends. We're longing for a love that never ends, a peace that never ends. We know that, that that's where we're supposed to live, and yet everything around us feels like we're a stranger, that we're an alien, that we're foreign, that we're an exile. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Abney left that garden, all of us feel this tension, like we're living as exiles. We've all felt it at some point. Maybe you've moved to a new city and you feel like you're a stranger in that land. Maybe you've been rejected by a loved one or, or a romantic relationship and you feel like an exile at that moment. Maybe you, you feel like you're a stranger to yourself sometimes. And this ideal state of a sense of belonging and this ideal state of sense of knowing who I am seems to elude us time and time again in this world. But yet we see around us that we're just supposed to all get along, right? We're supposed to just enjoy this life and get along. We see on the way back from the ministry, we saw that, that old bumper sticker that says just coexist, right? Like we just coexist, all right? We should all just sing Imagine by John Lennon. Everything's going to be okay. We'll all, be, we'll all get together. We'll all be able, But yet we live in a world where that seems to elude us. It seems like not to be reality. We have this human condition, this longing within us for something deeper. And Paul says that is hope. Notice he doesn't start here by giving us a PowerPoint presentation of here's the church. He says, no, we first have to remember, what is this condition? What are we striving for? What are we longing for? Because God has made a way for that longing to be fulfilled. And it's not by an institution made by human hands. It's by a family that God creates the covenants of promise. 
And he needs us to remember that God is making a way for us to belong, but first we have to see that we desire that hope. But then as we continue, we see the consequence if we live in that condition of no hope. Verse 14, he says, For he himself, being Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So if we all have this common condition that we are without hope apart from God, apart from Jesus, and we have a longing for that hope within us, what does that naturally lead to? Well, he says there's actually a consequence. And we see it in one word in this text, in these verses, and that is the word hostility. The exact opposite of peace which Christ brought. Hostility, the feeling like we are at odds with one another. The feeling sometimes of hatred or enmity or disdain for another. This is the outpouring. This is the consequence of our condition of alienation. When we feel like we're strangers to this world, it is not just some existential crisis between us and God. Paul says that it produces hostility between the flesh and blood. It presents a hostility between one another. We know this to be so true, right? When relationships break down in our lives, don't we feel a greater sense of alienation? That condition of feeling like we have no hope, that we're strangers in this world, it creates more hostility and makes it less and less likely that this is the home that we're created for. The condition leads us to this consequence. And even though, again, we know that we're supposed to get along with one another, oftentimes our world is described as a place of distrust, a place of gossip, a place of racism, a place of political tribalism, of distancing, of bullying, of isolation, of pride, all these things and more. It feels like this can't possibly be the world in which we're supposed to live in. The possibly the world that we're created to be in, the people that we're created to live with. What is the diagnosis? What is the, the why behind this? Well, the Bible says the answer, the reason why we live in this hostility is because as you read the narrative of the Bible, you see this rhythm in the Old Testament that God says to his people, I am your God and you will be my people. And every time he proclaims that, we see harmony. I will be your God, you will be my people. Why is there harmony? Why is there unity? Why is there peace? Because when that reality, when that relationship is present, what we have in common is far greater than what divides us. When God is the center of our lives, when he is the cornerstone of our lives, when he's the foundation of our lives, when he shapes our identity, the way we think, the way we view our job, the way we view how we date, where we spend our money, how we raise our kids, when he becomes the core of our identity, it brings peace and unity because what we have in common is greater than what divides us. But the Bible also reminds us of this, that we fail to live in that rhythm that sin actually becomes our God. And we begin to live as if we don't need anyone else because we are our own on God. It's the self-centeredness that destroys that unity and what brings about a world where what divides us is greater than what unites us. And Paul's case study here is between Jew and Gentile. And what does he say actually creates the divide? Well, if you look at verse 15, what is the thing that has to come down? It's actually the law of God. It's the commandments that creates this hostility. And at first you might think, well, what is he saying there? Is he saying that the law of Moses, the commandments, the Old Testament, is he saying these things are bad? No, certainly not. Paul would not say that these things are bad. He would actually say in Romans that they're good, they're spiritual, they're, they're, they're for our good. Why is he saying this brings hostility then? Well, it brings hostility because if you go back in the Old Testament, you see that God gave his law to his people. Now Isaiah 42 says that they would be a light to the Gentiles. 
He set it up such a way that they would be a light to the Gentiles, the same way that, that Jesus calls us as Christians in the New Testament to be a light unto the world. The law is given to them to showcase that this world to come, that we're talking about, the, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, that we could be part of those promises to draw people in to say, I want to be a part of that community. I want, I want God to be my God. What ends up happening? The law, the way of life for the Jews becomes their pride and joy. Instead of it showcasing how bridges can be built, it literally builds up walls between Jew and Gentile. And it built literal walls as well. There was actually a wall in the temple. And archaeologists have found signs that were posted on that wall that said, if you are not a Jew and you come in, we're going to kill you. Because you're unclean. That's the hostility that was created. Now, why is this important for us to remember? Because oftentimes we will find in life that the things that divide us are actually good things about us. And sin in our hearts reorders things in our lives. And it takes the best of us, the virtues of us, the things that are are best about us, and it turns those things into something that we can be proud of. And we bolster our sense of self-esteem by looking down on those who don't have what we have, thus creating hostility. We take good things that are differences between us, like our jobs, our body, our skin color, our socioeconomic status, these things that are different about us, and we bolster them. We, we put them up to build self-esteem within us, to make us feel good about ourselves. And in doing so, we actually leverage those things in life to look down on others, and it creates hostility. We do this in the most silly ways, right? I, I was just thinking about this this weekend. We were at the, the men's retreat, and there was some, the, some talk with a few guys going on about how we like steaks cooked, Right? And it's just a few people who like their steaks cooked well done. I'm not going to name their names here, um, but they do. And as the moral superior person I am, I just thought that's, that's just wrong. Like, why would you do that? You know, I immediately leveraged the way I like my steak cooked to feel superior to another human. And that's silly, I know. But think about that for a moment. How often we do this in life. How often we leverage the things that we like or dislike or the things about us, and we use those things to build ourselves up and tear others down. We do it through words, we do it through actions, we do it through gossip. What do you think gospel, gossip is but social cannibalism, right? It's tearing, it's eating others down so that you can build yourself up. And oftentimes in life, we moralize our differences. We assign moral value to them. We say that the things that make me who I am make me good. And in doing so, we look down upon our brother and sister. We look down upon those around us, thus creating the consequence of hostility. It is our own insecurity before God because we know we're alienated that perpetuates this continual hostility between humanity. That our differences become the things that divide us instead of unite us. We need a cure for this. And the text gives us that. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. See, what we need is a new identity. And we find that new identity through the cross. We need a new foundation, a cornerstone, something that can return us to that rhythm that he is our God and we are his people. 
And Jesus comes along and he begins, as verse 17 says, to preach, to teach about peace. And what is unique about the way Jesus does this, right? He's not the first person to talk about peace. He won't be the last person to talk about peace. But his peace brings about a whole new people. It creates a whole new witness, a whole new family in which otherwise would be people who would never get along with one another are now brothers and sisters. And what is it about Jesus' teachings in verse 17 here that are so wonderful? Was well, because Christ was not just another uh, philosopher. He wasn't just another prophet who spoke the words of God. He was God himself. When he came and he preached peace, he was not just relaying a message from God. He is God. When he showed up, he spoke. They were divine words. But it wasn't just the words that he spoke that brought peace. It was he himself who is our peace. It was through his death that we receive peace. That Jesus himself died. And when you put these two things together, you can understand how Christianity has the one remedy, the one cure for what breaks down the walls of hostility in this world and brings about a unity that can only happen through the uniquely death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and me. That's how much he cares for us, how much he loves us, and the one way in which he can unite us as a family. And what happens when he unites us? Well, you know what happens? We become the same. We become to see that we're more alike than we are different. How does that happen? Well, again, look at verse 17. Who does he preach to? He says he preaches to those who are far and those who were near. And this is what he's saying there. He's preaching to the Gentiles who are far outside of the, the covenants of promise and those who are near, the Gentiles, or the Jews. He preached to the quote-unquote pagans and he preached to people who would sit in a room like this. What does that mean for us? It means that our relationship with God, it means that our being right with God is not dependent on you being in church today. It doesn't matter if you show up to church. It doesn't matter how often you read your Bible even. It doesn't even matter if you do the thousands of activities we offer at this church through our announcements. It does not make you right with God. Being religious and good has nothing to do with it. And maybe you grew up as in the category of near. Maybe you grew up in church thinking that God loves you because you're good. Maybe you grew up thinking God loves you because you are doing all the things right. And what that leads to us is a radical insecurity. Because we know it's not true. And it leads us to look down on other people who aren't in our churches. But Jesus came and he says, no, I'm preaching to everybody. Because everybody, near, far, in this world, whether religious or not, have the same fundamental problem that they can't solve on their own. That's why we need this change of identity, because it's making us all the same. It's helping us to understand that we all have the same common problem. And it's far greater than what divides us. But we are all in need of God's grace. No matter who we are today, everyone needs it. We are equally lost and equally in need of God's grace, whether we're far off or near. But you know the thing that makes us the same? is what he does to the cross in verse 16. He kills this hostility. He puts it to death. How does his death put the hostility to death? Because Jesus is the only one who could ever live up to the law of the commandments in verse 15. How can it be abolished? It's because he's the only one who can live up to those demands. There is not just hostility in this world between humanity. It is not just my hostility with God 
but is also God's hostility towards me that needs to be solved. That there is wrath from God that burns against us. The Bible says it is his settled just disposition towards anything in this world that is undermining the world in which he created. That good and perfect and pure, peaceful and loving world in which God has created. And when we're undermining that through our hostility, the way in which we live as we are our own God, he is not going to allow that to perpetuate. He will have his day in court. There is not just hostility against God, there's not just hostility with one another, but his hostility is against us. But it was killed on the cross because when Jesus went to the cross, he lived that perfect life. He lived against, uh, uh, above and in, 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 uh, up to the standard of God's commandments. And Jesus goes to the cross, and you know what he says? You know what he displays for us? He says, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to receive that hostility. I'm going to become the one in which God is angry at because of sin. I'm going to take on that hostility for you. And you know what that makes us the same? It's because of what verse 18 says. It fundamentally changes our relationship. Because when we look to Jesus and we see that he has taken on that hostility, we all get to call God our Father. Look at that verse 18. We now have the opportunity to call God our Father. We're not all the same just because we have the same need. And in our humility and brokenness, we see our need for God's grace. We are also the same because we all have the same status when we believe in Jesus. We are all his children, equally, unconditionally loved, no more condemnation. That is what makes Jesus' teaching and life about peace so unique because he is our cornerstone. He is our foundation. And when we believe in him, when we see what he has done for us on the cross, that we can't use our differences to feel superior anymore to others because we realize that we've been saved by solely his grace and he has changed our identity. That is the cure to hostility in this world. And it leads us to our final point today, community. How can we be a part of this new community? What is through this cure? Look at it, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul ends here reminding us that to be a Christian means that we're not only called out of that alienation, but we're called to live in a completely different community. We're called into something. We're not just called into living an isolated life with God. We're called to live in a community with others who believe in him. We're called out of that hopeless condition and exiled life to live completely and differently inside a community that is his family. Now, I know sometimes this is hard for us to grasp because we do live in a society that is becoming increasingly personalized and less corporate. You can read any major outlet. I, I research articles from NPR, New York Times, the, the, the Pew Research even, and they all point to the same growing trend. That even though there's still this, this subtle hunger and thirst for spirituality in our culture, there is a rapid waning interest in being connected to institutionalized religion. There's a massive decline in trust with the institutions of the church. 
There is a disdain for it. There's a separation, a, a desire to be isolated from it. But St. Augustine puts it quite graphically, I think, in this quote, but so well for us today. One of the early church fathers said this, Yes, the church in many ways is a prostitute, but that prostitute is the bride of Christ, and she is your mother, and you have no right to abandon her. There are several metaphors that flow from this text that make it unthinkable for us to consider that we could be created by the triune God who is in relationship and be vitally connected to him and yet have a disjointed relationship with his family. As dysfunctional as the family of God is during certain seasons, and we can all admit to that, it is not healthy nor wise to amputate yourself from the body of Christ if you are a believer. If you want to have a relationship with God where you know the hope of his glory promised in Ephesians 1, if you want to be more like Christ and you are trying to do it without the church, then what you've done is invented a different God than the God of the Bible. Because that is not the Christian life. We are made for community. We are immediately placed in this new community when we believe upon Jesus. And this is what he says defines this new community. He calls us citizens with the saints, meaning that when we become a Christian, we are not primarily from our hometowns anymore. We're not primarily even from the United States or, or Asia or Africa anymore. We're not primarily defined by our race, white, African, Asian anymore. We are now citizens of another kingdom. Our nation is the kingdom of God. Our allegiance is to a new king. That first kingdom, his kingdom. It does not mean that we don't owe allegiance to the places where we live, but the countries in which we live in. C.S. Lewis famously said, the best citizens of this present world are the ones who are the citizens of the next, right? But it means that we should see that this is a far greater impact on us than what we formerly identified with. We are now citizens of a new kingdom with the saints. We're also members of God's household. This is referring to adoption, which we talked about a few weeks ago. The doctrine of adoption. When we're adopted into a family, what does that mean? We become a part of that family. You take on their last name. You take on their primary language. You take on their values. If they move to a different state, you move with them. Right? In essence, what, what is saying here, when we become a part of this new community, we are more Christian than I am a Welsh, which is my last name, right? I am now formally in the family of God. And I am first and foremost a brother in Christ before I'm a member of the Welsh family. And Jesus himself says this in Luke 8. When the disciples are like, hey, your, your, your family's outside, he says, no. He looks at the disciples and says, here are my mother and brother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It doesn't mean we abandon our families. It doesn't mean we abandon our culture at all. But it means that first and foremost, our fundamental identity is that we are part of the family of God. And then we're also a holy temple, he says, being built up brick by brick, held together by mortar. We're cemented together, pointing to this indestructible bond we have, this beautiful representation that we've been reconciled into one body, this new humanity through the cross. We're one body now, and that body is awkward, and that body has issues, right? My body is awkward and has issues, okay? I'll just share one with you, and now you're going you're gonna to notice it all the time, so I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. I have weird ankles, Okay? I really do. I'm triple jointed in both of my ankles, which means, yeah, I know, right? Which means as a wannabe athlete growing up, I was the most clumsy, somewhat athletic kid. I don't know how it worked, but it did. I had to wear these ankle braces that were, that were so restrictive on my movements to help me so I didn't break my ankles every time I played sports. I had to learn how to walk a certain way to help me so that I could run on the football field and not trip over myself every time, okay? 
Now, I have a few options with my weird ankles. I can do what I can to support them. I can do what I can to train myself to walk a certain way, or I can just get rid of them. Just amputate them, right? Just get rid of them. If I do that, I'm going to lose a huge function of my body, right? I'm no longer going to be able to run or walk. Now, sometimes we treat the church the same way. Right? Are we disillusioned with the church today? Maybe you should be. Maybe you should be. Because as I see it, the church today is the same as it was in Ephesus. It is a collection of incomplete, highly high-maintenance, dysfunctional individuals. You're one of them, I'm one of them. And you're welcome to here, just like I am. We all have our issues, guys. And Paul is pointing to the fact that if you're a Jew, you should welcome the Gentile, no matter how different they are. And if you're a Gentile, you should welcome the Jew. And there is no way we could see any more difference than Jew and Gentile in the first century. And yet Jesus says, I'm bringing you together as one. You are now one body. Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he says, the only fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight is when it begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. In other words, the imperfections we find here at King's Church are not the excuse to self-eject. The imperfections we find at King's Church should be the things that we embrace to grow up as a holy temple as God has called us to. To raise one another up in Christ, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the Old and New Testament, Christ being our cornerstone. We are being built together, raised up as a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Which means as we come together, as we are being built up as this dwelling place, the necessity there is that we will assume God's character. We will be built up by the Spirit as a place where we look like Jesus. And so as we close and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, let me just challenge us with this church. That growing up in Christ in a new community means that we can grow past just a tolerance for one another in this room. A tolerance means that I can... I can Tolerate your presence here, but I don't want to pursue friendship. I don't want to embrace you. As the body of Christ, let's challenge one another that though we were once strangers, we are now family. Though we were once exiled, we have been brought near through the peace that is ours in Christ. Jesus loved his church so much that he was willing to lay down his life for it so that it could go to the ends of the earth, could be reconciled. And if Jesus is willing to do that for his enemies, then can we at King's Church come together as one? Can we see an opportunity to grow and be built up as a dwelling place by His Spirit where God is glorified? Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.